broadcasting from the Superbook Sports Studios, KTUS AM 1060, Tempe, Phoenix, and KSLX HD2, Scottsdale, Phoenix. It's time to hit the field with Extra Point, featuring Kayla Mortolaro and Bob Kemp on KDUS AM 1060. Tweet the show at KDUS AM 1060 or give us a call at 602-260-1060. The snap is back. The hold is down. You can't miss with this combination. And the extra point is good. Welcome in to Extra Point right here on KDOS AM 1060. As always, you can follow along with us online at KDOS1060.com and with the KDOS 1060 app powered by Superbook Sports. It's Thursday. It's May 4th. Bob Camp, Kayla Mortolaro with you up until noon today as we typically do. Mondays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. Bob, I was in an earlier meeting this morning, and it was informed to me that today is May the 4th be with you. And uh, so therefore, I was reminded that I know nothing about Star Wars. So I figured I could turn to you to help me out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. I have never seen any of the 63 Star Wars movies. Not one of them. I've seen one. I was quite young, don't remember much, was very confused about what was going on, and uh, then was later told that I should have been confused because I didn't see the other movies to understand the backstory. So anyway, that was the end of my Star Wars days. You had a good excuse, then that's good. So... But I've never really caught in, got into any of these space adventure type of things. So I guess maybe that's part of the deal. But uh, I'm the wrong person to ask. So shoot. there you go. I would, I, been, would... I would have been even more confused at that meeting than you were. Well, shoot. I was hoping I could turn to you, but instead we'll turn All to right. maybe you some. Should know, you should know better. I mean, I did, but uh, thought we could have some fun with it. We'll turn to things that we do know, and we'll try to figure out. Uh, We'll start with the poll questions for today, and we'll start with the KDOS1060.com poll question, which is, who should Monty Williams start at point guard in game three? Options being Devin Booker or Cam Payne. Devin Booker out in front, 63% of the vote campaign trailing at 37%. Yeah, and uh, it seems as if it's going to be campaign, so we'll see how this goes. Also, Monty Williams certainly indicated yesterday that uh, that uh, yeah, Terrence Ross and T.J. Warren are going to get playing time, which is interesting because they've not scored any points in the postseason between the two of them. So I heard that as well, and then I remember, didn't he say that Terrence Ross was going to get some run in that Clippers series, and then it never really materialized? So I wonder if this time it's any different. Well, he played a couple of minutes, and then the Clippers just targeted him on the defensive end, much like the Nuggets did with campaign the other night. Is you know, you know, we hear the term "targeted" a lot in football when a you know, quarterback targets a wide receiver, but uh, the Nuggets went right after you know Ross in that last series. I mean, the Clippers did uh, went right after Ross in the last series, and the Nuggets certainly did that. With pain on uh, on Monday night in Game Two. In fact, if I remember my kind of my notes are actually I don't have those handy right now, but I believe that he committed three fouls in the first two minutes of the fourth quarter because they just went after him. Yeah, and I want to say uh, something similar to this effect that Monty said after saying about uh, uh, T.J. Warren and Terrence Ross getting some some minutes here upcoming is that it would be like we'll live with the consequences. Yeah, um, yeah. Warren certainly, when he was here the first time, was a really good score. And 
Yeah, longtime listeners uh, of the show might remember when they drafted him out of North Carolina State, I was all for it. Uh, he was a scoring machine in college. He was at, he played for an NC State team that wasn't that good. The ACC in those days was pretty good, and he was actually the MVP of the ACC. Here's how good he was in college, and he could score. And he also could score when he was here for the most part. But since he's left, he's had some injuries, and, and it's the point now if he's not scoring, you got you can't have him on the floor. But the Suns are at the point where apparently they're just desperate for scoring if they're going to use Ross and and Warren in Game 3. We'll answer that question around 11.30 or so today. We'll flip it on over to Twitter at KDOS AM 1060. Who do you have tonight? ATS in Game 2, Lakers-Warriors. Lakers plus 5.5, Warriors minus 5.5, and, and we're in a 50-50 split here. Yeah, and uh, see how the Warriors do. They've now lost three consecutive game ones of series. If you go back to last year's playoffs, obviously uh, they've come back and won the last three series with after they've lost game one. So see how they respond tonight. Uh, the Lakers, uh, you know, I thought they played like 30, yeah, more than that, like 43 minutes of pretty close to perfect basketball in game one and then they played like two and a half minutes of just imperfect basketball and then they uh, ended up outscoring the lakers 5-0 to end that game to win by five we'll uh, answer that question as well around 11:30 today we'll take your calls if you'd like to join the program offer up your thoughts on who the sun should turn to uh, as the point guard position and more nba topics if you'd like 602 260 1060 around 10:30 and 11:15 today we'll also head on out to the kdos hotline around 10:15 to catch up with james herbert cbssports.com to chat nba playoffs uh yesterday the Celtics completely dismantled the 76ers, uh, 121 to 87, to even that series up one apiece. Joel Embiid did play for Philadelphia, 27 minutes, 15 points, four of nine, and three rebounds. James Harden coming off of his 45-point performance, it was just 12 points, 10 rebounds on two of 14 from the floor and 0 of six from three. When it comes to uh, the Celtics, they were lifted by Jalen Brown's 25 points, 9 of 17, and really Malcolm Brogdon, your guy, off the bench, 23 points, 6 of 10 from three. Tatum only had seven points, in fact, in this game. He didn't do much, didn't have to do much. Uh, two things that kind of stood out to me is the Celtics, uh, you know, Missoula wanted more three-point field goal attempts. They had 51 of them. Uh, made 20, so he got what he wanted there. And, uh, you know, they made uh, quite a few of those threes, obviously. Uh, I guess there's no such thing as too many threes. And uh, you mentioned the uh, the Harden thing and the fact that, uh, you know, needless to say, you know, Jalen Brown had a good offensive performance. So the biggest difference, I think, as far as a defensive you know, change from games ones to game, game one to game two is that they put Brown on Harden. And, uh, you know, Marcus Smart's not 100%, as we talked about with uh, you know, Keith Smith in the last hour. And, uh, you know, that's I think that had something to do with it, too. But, um, you know, there was a much more difficult defensive matchup. And also, they didn't get uh, caught in screen rolls with Al Horford trying to check Herbert uh, to – trying to check, excuse me, uh, uh, Harden uh, like they did in the first game. That happened a lot. And that's that's a, that's the matchup the Sixers want. That's what Doc Rivers wants. And – including the last play of that uh, 
you know, at least the last meaningful play of that first game when that happened, when Harden ended up getting, making the game-winning three-pointer in that game. They got in a screen-roll situation, and that's exactly what Philadelphia wanted to do. And uh, the Sixers uh, you know, were able to exploit the fact that the Celtics didn't you know, really make any adjustment to that. But they certainly did that. A big adjustment from games one to two as far as to, to basically just you know, not even getting into that kind of a matchup situation. So I don't want anyone to take this as I'm just isolating last night's performance here from Jason Tatum, one of seven, oh, of three from three for seven points. But I do have just a question about his game because uh, it, it feels like, you know, he's obviously a focal point of offensive production for this Celtics team. He works well in tandem with Jalen Brown, but it feels like there should be a point where we're getting more consistent play from him where he is the guy more often than not, or am I being too critical of where he should be at with his game i think you're way too critical sorry but i think you are i think he's very consistent i think he's one of the three or four best players in the league quite frankly uh, and uh, i think he's just a sensational offensive player you know didn't really have to do much last night so i think that was part of the deal and when you're jacking up 51 threes and making 20 of those uh, that uh, kind of uh, eliminates the uh, necessity for him to become, become really an offensive dominant player. They didn't need him. Uh, so if that continues, I'll maybe change my mind. But, you know, once they're, you know, they're, they're about the only guy I probably in, I've liked more in college basketball the last five or six years than Malcolm Brogdon is Jason Tatum. And uh, I wanted the Suns to get both of those guys somehow. And uh, they should have actually had Tatum, and they screwed that up. Uh, they could have had Brogdon, uh, but you know, at least they had alternatives. That, uh, at least one of those alternatives worked out okay. Uh, for the mindset for the 76ers, it has to be kind of, I know that they got blown out, but not really focusing on the, the scoreboard here because you're going back to Philadelphia 1-1. That has to be a, a much better place than obviously being down 0-2, so getting and stealing that first game. Agreed, but you know, I'm really worried about Embiid. He looked like he was really laboring to me. Uh, yeah, he took off the brace after the first quarter, uh, and it just looked like uh, you know, some. I think he's probably a difficult guy to assess any time, anyway. No matter what, seems like there's always something physically wrong with him. But you know, and he spends all you know tons of time on the floor. I mean, just gets you know hits the floor for whatever reason. But he really seemed like he was struggling. And I was kind of wondering, why is he still in there uh, as long as he was last night? And I'd be concerned about his long-term future in this series, quite frankly. But, uh, you know, I'm sure he's going to give it a go. But he didn't look like he was anywhere near. I didn't expect him to be 100%. They said like two, three games ago that this is an injury that usually keeps you out for at least a month. And he missed like 10 days. We will get into much more around the NBA on the other side of the break as we'll pop on out to the KDOS hotline. James Herbert, CBSSports.com to talk NBA playoffs. We'll get into more of Game 2, Lakers and Warriors, figure out what uh, he would do if he were uh, in charge of making decisions for the Phoenix Suns, Devin Booker campaign. How do they... uh, I guess, try to fill the void of CP3 missing game three uh, and potentially beyond. So we'll do that on the other side of the break. It is the extra point here on KDOS AM 1060 online at KDOS1060.com and with the KDOS 1060 app powered by Superbook Sports.
Every Monday night, check out Ray Adams as he hosts the Monday Night Golf and Lifestyle Show from 6 to 7 p.m. here on KDUS AM 1060. Welcome back to Extra Point right here on KDOS AM 1060. As always, follow along with us online at KDOS1060.com and with the KDOS 1060 app powered by Superbook Sports. We pop on out to the KDOS hotline as we're joined by James Herbert, CBSSports.com, to have an NBA, NBA playoffs conversation. James, it's Bob and Kayla. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for joining the program here. Let's begin this conversation here locally. The Chris Paul injury. The team is saying he is day to day. There are other reports uh, that suggest it's much more significant than that. I do think it is fair to say that his production hasn't been the same this season, but on a team that doesn't have a lot of depth from your vantage point, how crippling is this son's injury uh, to Chris Paul trying to come back down 0-2 to the Nuggets? Yeah, it's not good news for the Suns team. I don't think you can just look at Chris Paul and, like, how many points he's averaging lately and say, oh, well, it's not that big to do. Like, no, like, he plays a really big role for this team, and, and I think you can just look at how it played out in, in the last game. I mean, he was actually starting to get going, like, right before he got hurt, went out of the game. Like, he found that space in the middle against the drop and made a couple of those mid-range jumpers, those, like, classic Chris Paul shots. Um, and the game was pretty close at that point, too. And I thought they just they had trouble after that, finding the right lineups, finding any sort of kind of organization or flow on offense. And I think not having Paul there, whether it's just for his spacing um, away from the ball or just as another guy who can initiate offense and kind of get people in the right spots, like they did really miss that. They missed it particularly because Cameron Payne was missing everything and because I think Monty Williams was kind of trying and searching to find the right offensive combination anyway. Like, I think that really did have an enormous impact on that game. I think it's a little different when you have a couple of days to prepare and you know that CP will be out. I think you'll probably see a better version of Payne if he knows he's going to get those minutes and he knows that he doesn't have to be looking over his shoulder if he misses a jumper or anything like that. And I think you'll probably see some downstream effects over the course of the game in terms of like who gets in the game. Monty Williams has already said um, that he plans to use guys like Terrence Ross and TJ Warren more, um, give those guys a shot, just give the Suns some other sources of offense on the floor so it doesn't devolve into just, you know, Devin Booker and Kevin Durant kind of staring at a defense that's loaded up against them and trying to make difficult shots, which like we've seen them make plenty of times. Those are supposed to be bailout shots at the end of the shot clock, not like the only things that the Suns are getting in their offense. You know, I want to ask you about the Nuggets a little bit here. Uh, let, let's start with uh, Michael Porter Jr. and Aaron Gordon. Uh, they've definitely improved their offensive games in the last, well, you know, Porter defensively, Gordon offensively, but they're more well-rounded players the last couple of years. Uh, is that an accurate assessment of those two guys in your opinion, and how much better have they made the Nuggets as opposed to the last couple of years? Yeah, I think a lot of it is context because what Aaron Gordon was doing in Orlando was completely different than his job in Denver. I mean, that that season when he spent the first half of the year um, with the Magic before the trade, there were times when he was functioning as effectively their point guard in the half court because of some injuries they were going through. He was their number one option on offense a lot of the time. Um, I, I don't think that was ever sort of his destiny 
as an NBA player. Now, like, if he gets a mismatch on him or something, you, know, you can see him pull out that jumper. You can see him put the ball on the floor. He's certainly um, really good when he gets the ball on the floor and is able to attack space. Like, it's not like he doesn't have playmaking skills. But he's not – like, he shouldn't be your lead offense initiator or anything like that. Like, this is the absolute perfect situation for him offensively because of the way that the Nuggets play. It doesn't matter that he's kind of an inconsistent three-point shooter – um, as much as it would on other teams. Like, he gets all these opportunities from cutting off the ball. He has great chemistry with Jokic, basically the second that he arrived um, in Denver. He gets stuff in transition that they didn't get as easily before he was on the team. He can crash the offensive glass. He can do a whole bunch of stuff. And, oh, by the way, he is this, like, super versatile elite defender that, I mean, they've put him on centers. They've put him on point guard at times. He can kind of guard whoever they want him to like i i think like he truly has found his nba home if i were him i would want to stay attached to Jokic for the rest of my career because it is just so perfect for him and, and with porter I, I think you have seen like real development from him uh, on the defensive end i think he understands what his job is there you see that sort of weak side rim protection um that he provides just because he's like super long and big he's not like the most aware defender in the world but you can watch the tape from a few years ago and compare to what he's done in this series, and I think it's a really big difference. And then on the offensive end, yeah, I mean, he, he gets a lot of open looks that he wouldn't get on other teams again because he plays next to Jokic and, and Jamal Murray. Um, but also, like, when he's on the floor and Jokic isn't, like, you see him take a little bit more difficult shots, self-create a little bit more. You see him, he's, again, the kind of guy that lays in the shot clock to get him the ball. He can shoot over anybody. Um, he can make those kind of plays, but that's not what he's doing most of the time. Like, I think he has kind of sacrificed in terms of a guy that came into the NBA probably thinking he was going to be um, this sort of offensive superstar. He is not that, but he does get his points. Um, and he's on a team that has, you know, it was the best team in the West in the regular season. Um, and uh, I, I think the whole system is sort of calibrated for those guys to thrive right now. James Herbert, CBSSports.com here on KDOS AM 1060 in the extra point. Admittedly, during the play-in tournament, I was thinking to myself that maybe it was just time to accept that the Heat have been showing us who they've been all season long. We're used to defense. We're used to physicality. Something was just missing, but they made it through the play-in. They survived the injury to Tyler Hero to top the Bucks behind Jimmy Butler's insane playoff performances. The Heat, though, have been more than just Butler, so what's clicking for the this team right now yeah it's been such a strange season for them obviously the story has become a much more positive one lately and but like it does feel familiar when you're watching them um in these playoffs like because just like the heat teams of the past like last year comes to mind the bubble comes to mind like they get it done in a variety of different ways like jimmy butler goes out um after that ankle injury in game one and in game two they're like all right well we're gonna go get up a ton of threes and we're going to play a ton of zone. And they're going to sort of approach this matchup with the personnel they have and just try to um, get the most out of them. They have always found these guys in the scrap heap, these undrafted players, um, and carved out roles for them, allowed them to thrive um, in their system. I think they set a record for points scored um, by undrafted players in a playoff game in, in game two, which is, I guess, like, it is impressive. It's also when half of your rotation is those guys that's kind of bound to happen. Um, but, I mean, I love the way that they've been competing defensively. And then also, like, the, the, the sort of strategic stuff that Spolstra has.
has been doing. It just, it's impressive every year. It's been extremely impressive this year, um, particularly the way they're prepared for that Bucks matchup in the first round. And, like, what they did at the end of Game 5, I thought, was, like, kind of brilliant. Like, they, they had Bam Adebayo initiating the offense, uh, drawing Brooke Lopez out of the paint, and they were finding, like, layups that way. Like, that is how um, Jimmy Butler ended up getting um, that lob play was because they understood how he was going to get defended coming off of the screen. They took Adebayo out of the game, and Milwaukee responded by taking Lopez out of the game. And Spolstra kind of saw all of that coming, and Butler saw all of that coming, too. They're just a really smart team. They're a really hard-playing team. And it turns out they're a really resilient team, which I didn't know that that was necessarily the case when they lost their first play-in game. You, you mentioned Spolster. You mentioned a couple of examples there about you know just strategical things with him. Why does he always seem to be ahead of whoever he's coaching against in the postseason? And this has been going on for a few years. You mentioned the bubble, and you know, certainly last year taking the Celtics in, in, into the you know close to the brink in the playoffs a year ago, and and so forth. And you know, you know, I used to just think, well, it's kind of like Pat Riley Jr., but he's way beyond that now, right? Yeah, I, I think he's just, I mean, he is an excellent coach. He's kind of seen everything at this point, and I think he's not afraid to think on his feet and make adjustments. And it's not just, okay, we're like two games into the series. This isn't going well now. We, do we have to change the starting lineup? Do we have to figure out a different strategy? It's like possession to possession. He will see things, and he'll adjust on the fly. Like the, the way they were defending the Knicks in the first half of game one and the second half of game one, was night and day. They, they gave up like 40 paint points um, in the first half, which is about what the Heat gave up on average in a game during the season. And they kind of looked at the Knicks roster and they're like, how, like, why are we doing this? Um, we're going to pack the paint. Um, they had, when Josh Hart would set a screen, even though he's defended by a perimeter player, they would drop against that screen as if like it was a, a center uh, doing it because they didn't care if Josh Hart shot threes. And then the Heat, um, basically changed the, the second-half story entirely because of that. The Knicks um, were stuck either forcing up bad shots in the paint or taking open threes with kind of shaky three-point shooters, uh, and Miami came away with the victory on the road, which is, like, not easy to do at all. Like, that was not just Jimmy Butler plays hero and goes off for 50. That was a really smart defensive adjustment at halftime that won them that game. And then when they went into the second game and they knew they didn't have Butler, who was, by the way, a huge part of their defense as well as their offense, they were like, all right, we're going to do this completely differently even than we did in the second half of game three. Like, they went to a zone um, fairly early on in that game, and I'm not even sure that they came out of it. Like, they, they had re really good results in, in that zone. Most teams kind of use that as a change of pace, but the Heat were basically like, the Knicks are going to have to show us that they can beat this zone. Um, before we stopped doing it, and that zone kept them in the game right up until the end. They didn't pull it out, but I thought the strategy was going to sound. James Herbert, CBSSports.com here on KDOS AM 1060 in the extra point. Uh, on the Knicks side of things here, you know, we've seen Julius Randle in and out of the lineup. Uh, you could also say maybe a little bit in and out of being effective as well. So who for the Knicks, though, has to step up and start being a factor? I, I think they would love for quickly to step up and provide a little bit of extra offense um, coming off of the bench, he was, you know, he was a runner-up for sixth man of the year this year. It was a huge part of their team. He changed a lot of games. He, um, some games when, when Brunson was out, he became their sort of lead playmaker on the perimeter and had some, some huge nights. And he just hasn't looked all that comfortable 
in this series. Um, I don't know like what they can necessarily do to free him up. He's typically a very confident player, um, but he has had a lot of trouble getting to his spots. He's, when he has taken his little floaters and flip shots, they have generally been pretty well contested, and he has not been taking a whole bunch of pull-up threes and nailing them. He has not been getting a ton of opportunities in transition. He's the guy um, that if they can get playing sort of freely – and get him to see the ball go in the hoop a couple of times, um, I think that might open up some other things for other players on the offensive end. And I, like other than that, I mean, it, it's just basically all about the three-point shooting, right? Like, I mean, they, they made 40% of their threes in game two. That's why they won that game. We know Miami is going to continue to try to make them beat them from the perimeter rather than getting where they want to go on the inside. Um, and it's going to be up to guys like R.J. Barrett and Josh Hart and, Quentin Grimes, all, all these dudes just step up and hit those threes. Even Julius Randle, like, the Heat will send extra bodies at him when he is in the mid-post trying to create. If he is just spotting up on the perimeter, like, they, they will largely live with those shots. They'll contest them, but they would much rather him getting those than bullying people on the inside. Warriors and Lakers, uh, game two tonight. You know, the Warriors are not blessed, blessed with a lot of length at the, to begin with, but you know, when they went small, it seemed like they were more effective in that game on, uh, on Tuesday night. Do you expect them to go small again, or was that just when they went small, they were desperate, they were chasing points? Uh, does that play a role tonight at all? I think it's, I think it's, it's both. They, they, they were chasing points. Like, Steve Kerr um, basically said as much after the game. It's like, we just needed offense. We were down, and the time was running out. Um, and we thought this was kind of the best option. He also mentioned that his assistants have been trying to, like, get him to do that earlier on in the game, and I, and I think maybe they should have. Like, what, what it really made me think about as I was watching it um, was the Memphis Grizzlies series against the Lakers in the first round. You look at um, the way the Lakers just, like, obliterated the Grizzlies in that series-deciding game. Um, well, a lot of that was because Luke Kennard didn't play a single minute. The previous game, Memphis had won fairly easily and the huge storyline coming out of that one was oh look what memphis finally did they played canard and desmond bain together they tried to space the lakers out and make them guard the perimeter this is a defense that is insanely good at protecting the paint largely because of anthony davis so what you really should be trying to do is like force him to leave that area open things up for other guys to attack the basket or just for your shooters to to get open threes, pull up threes, all of that stuff. And I think the Warriors, whether it's because they go small or whether it's because they just try to, like, involve AD and pick and rolls, like, however you can get him, like, you need to get him out of the paint and you need to get threes up just like they did in game one, even though they lost that game. Um, that, that has to kind of be the strategy. I think it's a lot easier to do that when you don't have two players on the court that the Lakers can just completely ignore impact the paint against um but you can the Warriors have in the past found ways to create those same type of looks by being creative with how they use Looney and Draymond and now Gary Payton the second and guys like that who aren't being defended um just finding ways to like involve the the paint protector and screening action on the perimeter even off the ball and stuff like that so I think that has to be the priority it's easier if you go small and I think you'll see more of it than you saw in game one um, but I don't know that they'll necessarily start the game that way. I don't even know if they'll close the game that way again. But you'll, you should see more of it. 
Uh, the Lakers and the Warriors Tuesday game averaged 7.36 million viewers, which happened to be the largest first or second round audience on cable in 11 years. We also saw uh, records being broken in the first round of games on ESPN as well. And the ratings have kind of been bonanza so far. So what do we attribute this to? Have people just been starved for really good basketball since the regular season was just pretty mediocre? I think there's two things, and I'll, I guess I'll start with the main thing. Is like this Warriors Lakers series is not your ordinary second round series at all. I mean, first of all, it's Warriors Lakers. Second, it's LeBron death, and that is typically a finals matchup. That is, I think, must see TV for not just like basketball nerds like myself, but like casual fans, like people who only watch a few basketball games a year. Like you can very easily get excited about this series and this story. It's the defending champs. Um, who, you know, had a trying regular season, whatever, uh, against this, you know, different version of LeBron who was trying to get it done in a different way with a team that, again, had this up-and-down regular season but seems to be coming together, maybe even peaking at the right time coming into the playoffs. And, um, you know, everybody remembers all the battles that Steph and LeBron have had in the finals. Those were um, some of the best series. Well, I mean, one of them was one of the best series that we've seen um, at least, and I think that's just a really easy way to get eyeballs on the sport. I mean, there's a reason those, like LeBron and Steph, have played so many times on Christmas over the years. It's just an insanely good second-round matchup. Beyond that, I mean, the first round was awesome. I just I thought uh, almost every series um, was super competitive. The, the Kings-Warriors first-round series that went seven in particular um, was one of the best first-round series that I can remember, like in, in recent NBA history. Like, I, I was you know, glued to every second of that, not just because it's my job and I had to be, because it was really fun. And, like, I, I do think that that series was one of the ones that did set some records, that did bring in a lot of viewers. And that, that makes perfect sense to me. Celtics and Sixers uh, now tied at one. Joel Embiid gave it a go last night. Not sure if he should have given it a go last night. Can he still be a dominant player in this series unless he has some kind of medical miracle comeback? Uh, not looking great on that front. Like my, my thought watching it was he shouldn't have come back. I, I didn't think right. the Sixers as a whole had anything resembling the rhythm that they had in game one. He was kind of deferring to other guys. Other guys were kind of deferring to him. Um, he was not able to do a whole lot other than protect the rim, which by the way, he protected the rim. Great. Like he got like five blocks in 27 minutes or something. And um, I think he discouraged some Celtics players from attacking the basket. But at other times, I mean, the Celtics were able to space them out and attack the basket, get to the line, all of that stuff. Like it was a really convincing Celtics win. Um, and I think the best argument uh, for having brought him back in the second game, clearly kind of, ahead of schedule was made by both Embiid and Doc Rivers after the game was they said they just wanted to get this one out of the way and that obviously he was going to be rusty he was not going to look like himself but if they had waited till game three then he would have been rusty and not himself in game three and then you're further along in the series maybe you're down to one at that point like you just kind of want to get this first one over with but I mean the other comment Embiid made that would worry me uh, greatly if I were a, a Sixers fan is that like with the injury he has like he's supposed to be out four to six weeks and this has been like about two weeks um, this is well ahead of the normal schedule for this type of strain in, in the knee he did not move like he moved the last time 
um, that, that I saw him play. Uh, and, yeah, I just it, – it's, it's a big risk. I get why it happened, and, I, like, I'm just sort of like, all right, well, we'll see. Like, I don't expect him to be at an MVP level, but I do think he needs to be at a higher level in terms of, a, of at least, like, conditioning and confidence and decision-making on offense than, than we saw last night. And his teammates also have to get used to his presence again as well. James, we always greatly appreciate you taking some time for us on the program, and we'll do it again here real soon. Awesome. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Once again, he is James Herbert there with CBSSports.com. Uh, you know, one thing that kind of I, I thought about when we were discussing the the Lakers and the Warriors series, and he's talking about LeBron James and trying to, to win another championship uh, in a different capacity. How much of this, though, has to be a playoff for Anthony Davis? Because a lot, a lot of people kind of believe that Anthony Davis was the guy and kind of discount that bubble championship. Well, he was the reason they won in the bubble. I mean, they, you know, he was the most valuable player in that particular setting. Uh, he has to be their best player right now and really has to be, I think he's the, you know, LeBron has, um, you know, some games and some stretches in games, probably more stretches in games that he's a dominant player. But rarely from, you know, game, you know, minute one to minute 48 in a game is LeBron the dominant player that we've seen before. More Extra Point is coming up next. HD Radio is here for KDUS AM 1060. Check out your favorite shows and games on 100.7 KSLX HD2. here on KDOS AM 1060 as always online at KDOS1060.com and with the KDOS 1060 app powered by Superbook Sports. Thanks to James Herbert, CBSSports.com for his time, contributions on the program. If you missed any of that interview, you can always podcast over at KDOS1060.com or with the KDOS 1060 app. Switching to the Diamond, the Arizona Diamondbacks beat the Rangers yesterday, 12-3. to Brandon Fott made his Major League Baseball debut, four and two-thirds innings pitched, nine hits, seven runs, one walk, three strikeouts, four home runs. Boy, were balls just flying out of the ballpark yesterday. In all, there were eight home runs in this entire game. Christian Walker had two home runs himself, a 376-footer to left field and 415 to center field. But uh, overall, this was a much-anticipated debut for Fott. And uh, what do you think? He was awful. Um, gave up uh, seven balls, hit more than 100 miles per hour in exit velo. That's an enormous number. Uh, you know, we were talking, uh, I don't remember if it was on the air or off or both. Uh, even some of the outs were rockets. And uh, he had a real tough time with the fastball. And that's supposed to be kind of a, a dominant pitch for him or a dominant pitcher. And, and uh, it was uh, you know, about as bad as it gets. And uh, it couldn't even make it through five innings. They were trying to get him through five so he could qualify for the win. But. Wasn't a good deal. Obviously, the third time through the lineup was a total disaster for him. And uh, this notion that they should send him back to AAA, I think, is just complete crap. I mean, that's just people that don't understand baseball a whole lot. Don't think they can do that right now. But if he has another couple of more shaky starts in the next two turns in the rotation, and they start a 10-game homestand against uh, three not-good teams, uh, so they've got an opportunity to – 
not just as a team, kind of uh, fatten up their record a little bit here. Uh, but, uh, yeah, they should uh, get their starting and pitch, starting pitching, which is a complete mess at the moment, uh, especially after you get past Gallon. Merrill Kelly had the one good start in Colorado. We need to see less walks like he had. He only had one walk in Colorado. That's great. But he had four or more. I believe it was his previous four or five starts. Uh, but you know, maybe he just uh, needed a little extra time, that World Baseball Classic thing. Certainly took him out of his you know normal spring training pattern. Uh, so I'm going to use that as an excuse for uh, maybe another start or two. But uh, we'll see how it goes. But uh, it was a disaster yesterday for Fott. And, uh, you know, this is a team that I think is desperate for starting pitching right now, desperate for maybe even some bullpen help. Uh, their, their rotation and uh, the bullpen right now, I think, uh, even in the uh, National League, which does not seem to be exactly filled with powerhouses, uh, I don't think, even with the expanded playoffs, I don't think they're a playoff team right now. As you mentioned, the homestand, uh, it begins tomorrow as they begin hosting the Nationals. Let's talk about the New York Mets. So today you have Justin Verlander making his debut with the Mets for the season here uh, facing the Tigers. He did uh, give up two home runs, and the Tigers are winning 2 nothing here uh, heading into the bottom of the third. But uh, Justin Verlander going back to a place where he once pitched in Detroit, but also for Mets fans, uh, they have to be excited to be able to get Justin Verlander to start the season. Yeah, I'm never alarmed when Verlander gives up home runs in his heyday. Uh, even as recently as a couple of years ago, he's amongst the league leaders in home runs allowed. Rarely are they home runs with runners on base or multiple runners on base. Both the home runs in the first inning, in fact, they were back-to-back, were solo shots. Uh, and, uh, you know, so we'll see how this goes. But, uh, you know, I would not be alarmed about the home runs early in this game. Back to yesterday, Max Scherzer returned after his suspension. Three and a third innings, eight hits, six runs, one walk, three strikeouts, and two home runs on 75 pitches. How do we feel about that return? It was awful. Um, I don't know what to actually think of Scherzer right now. He's had no real rhythm to the season. Uh, and hasn't been particularly good in most of his starts during the season. Uh, you know, he had the, the 10 days off, and, you know, that actually turned out to be more than 10 days off because they had the rainouts and so forth. It was a 10-game suspension, not a 10-day suspension. So that, uh, you know, set him back, and he had to, you know, he had to move him back at least one time. So, um, but I'm, I'm – I'm not concerned about what I've seen out of Verlander thus far. It's only been, what, into the third inning or fourth inning now. Uh, so I'm going to you know, reserve judgment to you know completely uh, be concerned there. I think there's le- legitimate reason for concern about Scherzer for what we've seen, though, so far this season. But the fact that there hasn't been you know, a set you know, four days you know, between you know, five days off, but you know, five, you know, five, the rotation's been a mess. Uh, and the rainouts uh, you know, have been a mess. He's, he had the injury, had that set him back a little bit. Then he had the suspension, and obviously that was a big deal. So you know, I'm going to I'm giving Scherzer a little bit of leeway there, but I think there's le- at least some reason for concern about him. 
The Rays and the Pirates yesterday, eight to one. Shane McClanahan pitched, uh, picked up, excuse me, his sixth win on the season. Six innings, five hits, one run, two walks, and nine strikeouts for for Shane McClanahan. There, they go up against each other again today. Vince Velasquez for the Pirates, four and two, three point zero six ERA, thirty two strikeouts. Zach Eflin, three and zero, three point zero zero ERA and twenty one strikeouts. Yeah, just the fact that you, know, you, you know, Velasquez and you know, the Pirates starting rotation, they've actually shown some signs, but uh, they're trying to avoid being swept in this series. And it's not like you know, the Pirates have uh, not exactly faced murderers row either. We mentioned that uh, Tampa had the uh, easiest schedule as far as winning percentage of anybody in the month of uh, in April, not just this year, but for several years. So I got off to this great start. I'm really concerned, as I've mentioned multiple times, about the status of the Tampa Bay pitching staff. You know, they've got uh, you know, three key players, uh, three key pitchers that are, uh, you know, one guy's out for the season, another guy we're not sure how long he's out for as far as the closer goes, and then you've got, uh, you know, a couple of guys who haven't even pitched yet this season that are supposed to be part of the rotation. So, um Pretty concerned about Tampa long term, just because of their the health of their of their actual pitching staff at this point. I have something for you on the Tampa Bay Rays. So they lead the majors in run differential, batting average, OPS, home runs, runs per game, and team ERA. But their schedule in May, they finish up this series against the Pirates. They have a series against the Yankees, Orioles, Mets, uh, Brewers, Blue Jays, Dodgers, and Cubs. And get this, if I'm looking at the schedule correctly, they only have one day off. That's May 15th. Yeah, that's, uh, I didn't know about the one day off. You know, I mentioned that they had the easiest schedule in April, uh, you know, by, at least when the month started. So that's been you know, not that far along, you know, four days ago. They actually forecast to have the toughest schedule in baseball in the month of May. I would believe that. And certainly with the one day off thing, that doesn't help either, especially as you're talking about with uh, their pitching situation as well. Uh, we will figure out what's going on at the Wells Fargo Championship Quail Hollow Golf Club on the other side of the break. Wrap up our number one of the extra point. He, of course, is Bob Kemp. Kayla Mortolaro with you up until noon today, as we typically do. Mondays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. Be sure to be downloading the KDOS 1060 app powered by Superbook Sports. Plenty of listener rewards available to you. Register once you download and take advantage of all of those cool prizes that are up on the KDOS 1060 app. But we wrap up our number one next on this Thursday, May 4th. social information about KDUS AM 1060, try KDUS1060.com at KDUS AM 1060 on Twitter and Facebook.com slash KDUS AM 1060.
final segment of hour number one here on this Thursday, May 4th. Bob Kemp, Kayla Mortolaro with you. And as always, follow along with us online at KDOS1060.com as well as with the KDOS1060 app powered by Superbook Sports. Let's take a look at what's going on at the PGA uh, Tour Wells Fargo Championship at Quail Hollow. Once again, it is a designated event. Uh, as the rules are stated this year, you're allowed one missed designated event without any repercussions. And Scotty Scheffler, John Rahm are electing to take their one missed designated event this week. So they are not in the field. The odds on favorite heading into the event was Rory McIlroy. And uh, it's in large part because, one, one of the best players in the field. Two, his course history around this golf course. He did shoot uh, three under par today. He's done for the day. That's good for a tied for sixth. Our guy, Patrick Cantlay, who, uh, looking at his metrics, he's playing probably some of the best golf out of anyone who has not won yet this season, plus the caddy switch. I, I guess I'm just all about this caddy switch, thinking that it's going to propel you forward here. He goes out and he shoots four under par. That's good. Good enough for a tie for fourth. Uh, we'll see how the rest of the week continues to unfold. Some of our other guys that we're paying attention to, Victor Hovland, uh, he's not off to a very good start here. He's two over through three, so he's going to have to turn things around. Ricky Fowler, he's sitting at even through four. And our long shot in the top 40, Joel Damon, he shot one over par today and is done for the day. So we'll continue to see how things are going at the Wells Fargo. Uh, once again, it's a long long golf course in fact uh it has the finishing holes as the green mile uh so certainly it's going to be a ball strikers golf course and we'll see how it continues to play out for the rest of the week but on that'll conclude our number one our number two of extra point is coming up on the other side of the break bob kemp kayla mortellaro with you up until noon today as we typically do mondays wednesdays thursdays and fridays hour two is next <laughs> 